I've lost something. First service, somebody said, yeah, I've lost my mind. <laughs> but I've had people come to me and say, yeah, I've lost my keys, lost a wedding ring, lost money, glasses, kids, <laughs> sanity, their phones. I remember when I was about five or six years old, I was with my grandmother, Granny, who was a very anxious woman. And I was at Waccamaw Pottery with her, a shopping center, and I got lost. And I remember the fear that I had, but I remember even greater the anxiety and fear that my grandmother had when she found me. And as I learned then, and I think you would agree, the passion, diligence, and actions of a search are directly connected and related to the value that's placed on what is lost. I mean, you lose your kids, eh. But you lose your phone, I mean, there's going to be a search. Well, Luke 15 has been said and described as the lost things chapter. Three stories contained in this chapter, Jesus tells the stories of God's pursuit and love of people. Jesus taught repeatedly that God is generous and that He's persistent and He's consistent and His forgiveness and His restoration are pursuing us. According to Jesus, nothing pleases God more than welcoming people into a right relationship with Himself. So I want to briefly touch on and connect us with each of these lost stories, and then we're going to close with a familiar story in Luke 19 of Zacchaeus. Because both Luke 15 and Luke 19 reveal the title of the message, which is Seeking and Saving, which is Jesus' will from His Father. And so before we get into the message and the stories, let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank You for this morning. We thank You for the opportunity You give us to come and to already experience your love and your mercy and your grace through the fellowship of your church, through the words and the music that we've sung, from the prayers we've prayed and the scriptures we've already read. God, thank you for being with us. And now, God, as we open your word, in these two chapters in the Gospel of Luke, I pray that you would teach us in all wisdom and all truth, that you would give us insight into ourselves, and more importantly, insight into your heart for us. Would you take a minute and pray for the person in front of you or behind you or beside you that they would hear and respond to the Lord this morning? In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I want to set this, the, the context and the, the tone of Luke chapter 15. In some ways, it's what we've been looking at in our study of Mark. Jesus is headed towards Jerusalem. Now, in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 15, you'll see that Jesus is talking to uh, what some have described notorious sinners and tax collectors, but also in the mix are scribes and Pharisees. And they're following him, and they're watching him, and they're listening to him, and they're leaning in to hear what he has to say. And it, Jesus 
teaches or talks to them in parables. Now, parables, as I grew up as a kid in the Baptist church, was an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Another way you can look at this is that a parable is a metaphor. It's a metaphor to connect things here on earth to the principles of God in eternity. And that's what Jesus is talking in, parables. And so we're going to look at the first parable that he says in Luke 15, verses 3 through 7. And it's the story, parable, of the lost sheep. So he told them this parable, saying, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which was lost until he finds it? When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over the ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Jesus begins talking about a sheep, but really, what he's really talking about is a shepherd. Although the word shepherd is never mentioned, it's clear it's about a shepherd. Now, shepherds, you remember, were the lowest class of people. They were the outcast. Uh, one historian commentator says this, No law-abiding Jew, no Jew of any respectability, no Jew who, has a Pharisee, who was a Pharisee or a scribe would ever become a shepherd. Nor would any Pharisee or scribe even like to think of himself hypothetically as a shepherd. But now they can't help of thinking themselves of a shepherd because Jesus has drawn them in with this question. What man among you? If he has a hundred sheep and he lost one, what would you do? Now there's not a lot of rules, there's not a manual on how to be a shepherd in the Middle East. But there was one very dominant rule about being a shepherd. And that is this. Don't lose your sheep. Everybody knew that. The Pharisees knew that. Jesus, of course, knew that. And he says to them, let's say, Pharisees, that you're shepherds. And one of your sheep goes missing. What do you do? Nobody's going to say, it's just one. It's just one sheep. The Pharisees, everyone knew it was the responsibility of the shepherd to find the sheep. The shepherd must leave, must search. This is his duty. This is his responsibility. And he searches until when? End of verse 4. Until he finds it. Meaning, no sacrifice will be too great. No time demand will be too heavy. No effort is going to be wasted in the pursuit of a lost sheep. And the point is this. Lost sheep get the attention of the shepherd. Now, you've got to remember this. Sheep are dumb. Sheep are stubborn. They are defenseless. They're ignorant. They, they get lost by ignorance. They just graze here, and all of a sudden, they just end up in another pasture somewhere. They don't know any better. Do you know how many defense mechanisms a sheep has? None. Even if they fall on their side, they can't get back up on their own. So the Pharisees and the scribes, they would start to understand a lost sheep needs the pursuit of a shepherd. 
Verse 5 says, And when he, the shepherd, has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. Now you might think that verse 5 would say, When the shepherd found that sheep, hmm, fill in the blank, right? There was no condemnation. There was no I told you so. There was no where have you been. Questions that I remember my parents saying. (laughs) He lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And verse 6 says this, And when he comes home, he calls his friends and neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the sheep which was lost. And then Jesus makes this connection in verse 7. In the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. The whole lost sheep parable is about the perseverance of God, the joy of God when a lost sinner is sought and found and recovered. God, alive in Christ, is a shepherd who seeks and saves lost sheep. 1 Peter 2.25 Once you were like sheep who wandered away, but now you have turned to your shepherd, the guardian of your soul. And, And notice this. It's the shepherd. It's the shepherd who pursues and takes on the risk. It's the shepherd who sacrifices the pain, the suffering, to bear of the weight of the sheep on his shoulders back home. John 10, Jesus' words, I am the good shepherd. And what does the shepherd do? Verse 15 of John 10, I lay down my life for my sheep. The shepherd does the seeking. The shepherd does the finding. The shepherd does the lifting. The shepherd does the caring. The shepherd does the restoring. The shepherd leads in the celebration. The celebration is not about the sheep. The celebration is about the shepherd. And after that story, after that parable, Jesus moves to another story about something that is lost, and it's the lost coin. It's lost by accident. Revealed because of diligence. Listen to verses 8 through 10. Or what woman, if she has ten silver coins and loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? When she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I have lost. In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now, this woman didn't lose the coin on purpose. It was an accident, and life can be that way. Life can be hard, and this fast-paced life that we live in, with all these ups and downs, with all the crazy turns, with all the loops and hoops we have to jump through, we can get lost, not on purpose, but on accident. I like what one author said, In response to the grind of daily living, more often we can neglect our commitment to God by accident rather than intent. The urgent task of existence can take our eyes off of eternal realities. And thankfully, God is never too busy to search for us. 
Now, in ancient times, women would collect coins or get coins, and they would put them in a little bag, and they would tie them up, and then they would tie them in their hair. They would tie them around their neck. They would tie them close to them. Why would they keep them close? Because they are valuable to them. And so Jesus is asking a question that's going to demand an answer. If you were this woman and had these coins and you lost one, what would you do? Well, the scribes and the Pharisees knew that there was only one correct answer. She had to find the coin. She loses the coin, and what does she do? She turns on all the lights, grabs her broom, starts flipping things over, starts sweeping. Anybody relate to this? Maybe it's in the crack. Maybe it's under this piece of furniture. Maybe I dropped it outside. Where could this thing be? And verse 9 says, she searches carefully. The verb here means that there's an urgent sense of care with persistence and with diligence. I've got to find this coin. And how long does she look for it? Verse 8, until she finds it. It's precious. It belongs to her. It's lost. It has to be recovered. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost. Jesus, in verse 10, says, and I can almost almost hear him, see him with a finger, maybe, in the same way. There is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. God's joy is in the recovery of a repenting sinner. It it is God in Christ who is the woman seeking the lost sinner under cracks, under hidden things, in the dust, in the debris and dirt of the world. It is God in Christ who initiates the search. It is God alone who tries to find the coin and seeks out the coin. Why? Because the coin can't do anything but lay there. It is God in Christ who comes all the way down to this world, all the way down to death, all the way down to death on a cross, to turn on the light, to sweep everywhere, searching for that which is lost. He tells them the the story of the sheep, the story of the coin, and now we see the story of a lost son, not because of accident, but because of full intent, but will be restored by the Father's compassion. Listen to verses 11 through 16. And he said, a man had two sons. Now just picture this. These Pharisees, scribes, tax collectors, notorious sinners are leaning in. And he said, a man has two sons. The younger of them said to the father, Father, give me the share of my estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be impoverished. So he went and hired out himself out to the one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into the fields to feed the swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving him anything to him. Now, let me ask this. How many of you have ever had a bad idea? You know, a bad idea that 
that eventually led to a bad decision, and that decision eventually led to a bad situation. Now, now you don't start out saying, man, this is a bad idea, can't wait to start. What you start out with is, this is a good idea. In fact, you can convince yourself, this is a great idea. I came up with this one. But then in your own mind, it proved to be, well, not so great. This is what happens with the younger son. The son thought he had a great idea. He's going to intentionally ask his father for his share of the family wealth. And it wasn't a, uh, a, it wasn't a subtle request. It was blatant and shameless. It says, the younger of them said to the father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. Now, when Jesus would have said this story, the Pharisees and scribes especially would have been like, what did he ask? You've got to be kidding me. Like there's this gasp. One commentator describes it this way. For a son to say that in the ancient Middle East and village life would be equivalent to saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. You are in the way of my plans. You are a hindrance to me. I want my freedom. I want out of this family now. I've got other plans that don't involve you. They don't involve this family. They don't involve this estate. They don't involve this village. I want nothing to do with you. I want my inheritance now. This younger son is wanting all this material stuff. It's a shameless and selfish request who in his mind thinks, it's a good idea. And all who heard it would have been angry for the father. In fact, in Jewish customs, it would have been appropriate for this father to have slapped the son. To shame him, to punish him, to dismiss him from the family, and perhaps even hold a funeral. How dare he disrespect his father that way? But here's the surprising thing. The father says to the young son in verse 12, the father divided his wealth. Now, if that didn't take back the Pharisees, that comment did. But here's the bigger picture. This is God giving the sinner freedom. God gives the sinner freedom. And this younger son is demonstrating the absence of a relationship with the father and the disregard and the disrespect. The sinner doesn't love God, doesn't care about God, wants nothing to do with God, nothing to do with the family of God, nothing to do with the future of the family of God. No accountability to God. Doesn't want to submit to God. Doesn't want any kind of relationship at all. Only the good things. Give me all the good things. And as one author stated, God, in the agony of rejected love, lets the sinner go. Once this son gets his pre-cash inheritance, verse 13 says he goes off into a distant country and the operative word is distant. He wants nothing to do with the father. No accountability. His shameful request has turned into shameful rebellion, and that's what happens every time. 
But as you and I have experienced what the son is about to experience, that bad, selfish, and sinful ideas never really work out the way we had it in our mind, do they? What he thought was a great plan starts to unravel in verse 14 when he says, Now when he had spent everything. Now this is important. I want you to watch this. When he had spent everything. You know, that was his doing. But the end of 14 says this, And a severe famine occurred in the country. That's God's doing. Remember, some things you are doing and some things you are not doing. We think we have control of everything. We do not get to choose every circumstance and consequence in our selfish pursuit or rebellion because God has a say in it too. And God desires humility, and that's what the famine was for. And the Pharisees and the scribes listening to the story are now feeling the weight of this horrible life of this young man. The son moves out from the the protection and generosity of his father. And now he has no family. He's in a foreign land. Nobody's giving him anything. He's alone. His party is over. Verse 14 says he is impoverished, meaning he's starting to understand for the first time his need. He's starting to recognize that he can't supply everything he needs. He doesn't have what it takes to be his own God, and neither do you or I. And when all this self-fixed stuff is exhausted, the sinner wakes up at the bottom. Verse 17, but when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger. I will get up and go to my father, and I'll say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer be worthy to call your son. Make me as one of your hired men. Verse 17 says, he came to his senses. Has anybody ever here came to their senses? Some are still going, I don't know, maybe. What does it mean? What does it look like to come to your senses, for the light bulb to go on, for everything to kind of make sense? This young son came to his senses. He, he realized something, and we need to understand something about this is that coming to our senses, becoming aware, is the kindness of God. It's a gift of God. Notice, too, it is in verse 17 that the father re-enters the story, not physically, but in the son's mind. And although I am sure that he has done everything he's possibly done and could do and can do to forget about his father... He can't forget about the love and generosity that he had with his father. Jesus says we get to to eavesdrop on this monologue that he's having with himself. He says, how many of my father's hired servants are living better than me? This is where repentance really begins. Repentance begins moving forward after an accurate assessment of your condition and a reaching out for hope and grace. We can see the younger son kicking himself, realizing now more than ever how bad and shameless his request and decision really was. And and he remembers his father has hired servants that he pays well, that's, that's generous. 
And just as a side note, he remembers. When you and I share the love of Jesus, there may be a time in somebody's life where they're going to remember. They're going to come to their senses. They're going to think, yeah, that's what they said. That's what's happening here with the young son. He knows his father well enough to know that he's a merciful man, generous man, forgiving man. Because he's experienced that all in the home already. He's ready. He's broken. He's alone. He's sad. He's sorry. He has nowhere to go. And he believes his father is good. Verses 20 through 24, the true focus of the story from the New Living Translation. So he returned home to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. His son said to him, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But his father said to the servants, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet, and kill the calf we have fattening, we've been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast, for this son of mine was dead and now has returned to life. He was lost, but now he is found. So the party began. The father's looking reveals the father's private pain, the suffering, the love, the longing in his heart to see his son was gone. And why is he looking? He wants to reach his son before the son reaches the village. He wants to protect him from the scorn and the shame and the abuse that the village is going to give him. And so the father runs out to protect him from all that, wraps his arms around him. He would rather have the focus on him. And people going, can you believe what that father has done to that son and for that son? And how does he do it? Verse 20, it says he ran. Now this word in the Greek is a technical word for racing in a stadium. It means that he sprinted. Most scholars believe he pulled up his gown and took off. It was almost as if he couldn't get there fast enough. It's what sprinters did, but it's not what Jewish fathers did. This is a radical compassion and pursuit of the father. It's overwhelming. It's shocking. The scribes and the Pharisees had to be shaking their heads. You've got to be kidding me. And not only does he run to him, he collapses on him with a massive hug. And he gave him and continues to give him. It's kind of like, you ever been around a granny who kisses their grandkids? They just can't stop. It's just like, mm, all over. That's what the father's doing with this son. From this scene in the story, there is not a doubt how much the father loves the son. The father empties himself of any pride, of any rights, of any honor, of any self-emptying display of love and brings shame on himself in order to throw his arms around that returning sinner and protect him from being shamed by anyone else. Reminds you of Philippians 2. Jesus gave up his divine privileges. He humbled himself to become obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Why? So he could take your shame and my shame.
Remember where the son had been? With the pigs? He didn't get cleaned up. The father embraces him and kisses him through the smell, through the dirt, through the muck. The father embraces him and kisses him in all our junk, in all our bad decisions. You want to know how eager God is to receive you? Just listen to Jesus in this passage. Jesus will sprint, see you through your dirt and smell and bear the shame and will embrace you with all his strength and plant kisses all over you. God radically pursues the lost. He radically loves those who have lost their way. The father knew the truth, yet he showed grace. And the father said to his slaves, quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. He says, this is what we've been waiting for. You know where it is. Grab the robe, the ring, and the sandals. And all three of those things are a reinstatement of sonship for the father. This son came in stinking. He came in in rags. He came in unclean. And nobody was ever going to see him that way again, according to the father. He was going to be seen as a recipient of the father's love. Just like me and just like you. Grace triumphs over sin at its worst. Think about the cross. Man at his very worst murdering Jesus and at the same time God displaying his very best for you and me. He was lost, but now he's found, and there was a party to end all parties. When you really look at this story and all the celebration stories of this passage, the celebration is not so much about the son as it is about the father. And that's what heaven's all about. It's not about us getting to go to heaven. It's about the rescuer of the father. Lost sheep, lost coin, lost son, all restored by a God who searches. And finally, I want to close with a familiar passage. Luke 19, lost in secret, rewarded with salvation. He entered Jericho and was passing through, and there was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. Zacchaeus was trying to see Jesus, who he was, and was unable to to because of the crowd, for he was small in stature. So he ran ahead and climbed up in a sycamore tree in order to see him, for he was about to pass through that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. And he hurried and came down and received him gladly. And when he saw it, they all began to grumble, saying, He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner? Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, Half of my possessions I will give to the poor, and if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he too is a son of Abraham. Verse 10, For the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost. 
Zacchaeus appears just once in the New Testament, and his story is brief. And what we know about him is the song we sing about him. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. I'm not going to sing the rest of it. But I want you to know a little bit more about Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus climbed up in a sycamore tree. We know that Zacchaeus was a crook. He was a Roman IRS dude. And he defrauded people. He stole from people. And so people hated him. In fact, when people saw Zacchaeus coming down the street, they crossed to the other side. And this shyster was perched in a sycamore tree. And most believe he was there because he wanted to see Jesus, but I also believe he was there because he wanted to be hidden. And let me just say, if you think for one second that you're hiding from God, you're fooling yourself. Because God sees us even when we think we're hidden. So Jesus opens his mouth. He looks up and calls Zacchaeus by name. Zacchaeus, come down. Now, I don't know if Zacchaeus fell out of the tree out of sheer shock. All those around probably were waiting for here to hear Jesus say, Zacchaeus, fiery message. But Jesus says, Zacchaeus, I see you. I see you. Come down. I'm going to stay at your house tonight. The people there go ballistic. What in the world are you talking about? Jesus remains silent. Zacchaeus comes down. Jesus, I'm, I'm giving back everything I stole and then some. Jesus said, wonderful. Let's go back to your house and celebrate. Frederick Breitner wrote this. The meeting between Jesus and man is always a matter of life and death, and usually both. Death to one way of living and life to another way of living. And so it begs the question, who is the gospel for? It's for everyone and anyone. I love what one author said, those who God created are those he seeks to redeem. For the Son of Man came to seek and save those who were lost. When I was growing up, I used to think that the gospel was a one-time event. You say a prayer, you die, you go to heaven. Good news of the gospel. But I realized there's a lot more to it than that. In fact, Zacchaeus and Jesus display that because Jesus says, I'm going to your house. Now, if that was any of us, we'd be like, oh gosh, I got to text somebody. I got to get somebody there to clean the house. I got to put some stuff away. I got to clean this up. The rabbi is coming to our house. Zach didn't have time to do that. And Jesus goes to his house. He's going to meet his friends, maybe some of his family, and he's going to go to every room of Zacchaeus' house seeking to save and redeem. The gospel is not a one-time event or a story. The gospel is a person 
the gospel as someone who is continuing, continuing to seek and to save those things in my life that need redeeming. I want to close with this. Matthew 16, 21, verses 23 says this, From that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised up on the third day. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord. This shall never happen to you. This side of heaven on earth, there are two wills, man's will or God's will. And all through the Gospels, you see Jesus saying over and over and over, God, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus said, the Son of Man must, I must go to Jerusalem because I have been called by God to seek and to save those who are lost. For God to seek and to save us, it costs God something, and that's what Holy Week is all about. Next week we'll start looking at that week. One writer said this, And in that costly grace was great power, because just like with the helpless and ignorant sheep, and the lost coin, lifeless, hidden in the darkness, the arrogant and selfish son, the pious and secretive tax collector, Jesus still has the power to find us, to pick us up, carry us back, and begin our celebration of restoration. And I just want to say this, there is no other God like there's no religion in the world that has a God who seeks and saves unworthy sinners because they have value in his sight. There's no other religion in the world. There's no other God in the world who seeks enemies and makes them their friends. Repentance. That work that transforms a sinner's life so they hate sin and love righteousness. They hate self and love God. They hate the world and love heaven. I'm not sure this morning. I have no application points, no questions to go home and think about. I don't know what you connect with this morning. Maybe you're thinking, man, I am a dumb sheep. Maybe you feel lost like a coin, lifeless in the dark. Maybe you're thinking, Matthew, I have messed up. I have thought I had a good idea, but it ended terribly i have messed up my life or you may be here this morning saying i just want to stay hidden and see jesus from a distance i'm not sure which of these stories connects with you but all have the same restored conclusion and celebration because we have a god who seeks and saves those who are lost let me pray for us God, I'm reminded of the familiar line in Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Psalm 139 talks about where can I go? Where can I possibly go? If I go to the mountains, you're there. If I go to the valleys, you're there. If I swim in the deep, you're there. Wherever I am, you're there pursuing me and not waiting for me to clean up but there to show me grace 
So God, this morning I pray for every person here, whether they're a sheep, a coin, a son, or one hiding, that they would know how much you love them. And that love was proven on a cross through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Amen.